Gucci turban. Gucci turban. Gucci turban. Gucci turban. Hey everybody, this is Nimesh Patel here with Asif Mansoor for our podcast. Gucci Turban. Sorry we've been MIA for a bit, but we're back now. Our first guest back, Rashant Venkateka Raj. I can't even pronounce his last name. Uh, Venkatara Manajam. Yes, there it is. Prashant, what? <laughs> Venkatara Manajam. He is a dear friend of mine, uh, also co creator, head writer, showrunner, executive producer of. Patriot Act on Netflix with Hassan Minaj. You guys know. Um, he's the man behind the scenes making shit happen. We had an awesome conversation about his ascent in comedy um, and capitalism, oddly enough. Our dad joke comes from our dad jokes on Reddit from user Sicky Crimson. This is I bought some I bought some shoes from a drug dealer, Asif. I don't know what he laced them with, but I've been tripping all day. <laughs> that's actually good. That's, a, that's, that's actually pretty joke. good. That's pretty that's good. Great. I like. It's solid. You can't match the cleverness and the groans factor of these jokes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I bought some shoes from a drug. Yeah, I bought some shoes from a drug dealer. I don't know what he laced them with, but I've been tripping all day. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, the rim shot. Boom! Fantastic. I'm a professional comedian. Uh, let's see if we have another one. <laughs> uh, here, here's another dad joke. Uh, two for this one because that first one wasn't the classic uh, setup in that Asif has to say what. This one from Dad Jokes on Reddit, user HumbleNoob76. Asif, what do you call a communist sniper? A marksman. <laughs> a marksman. <laughs> oh, that's fucking good. Oh, man. I'm a professional comedian. Nimesh Patel. Two for, two, two for that. That's fucking... We missed out. I've been sleeping on these. What'd you think of that one? A marksman? Perfect. It's pretty pun. good. That's a good... A perfect pun. It's, 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 I get that they're good and I respect them. I just, I don't know why they hurt me so much. Like, I feel assaulted. Because <laughs> you wouldn't know in what context you would even ever ask that question or say that word. A marksman? Oh, a marksman, eh? A communist sniper, if I have ever seen It's fantastic. Uh, our story of the day, Asif, what's our story of the day? Our story of the day is the ongoing congressional hearings of the big tech CEOs. Oh, AKA uh, Sundar and uh, what's his name? Young Zuck. Zuckerberg. Young Zuck. Jeff Bezos. Tim cooking something up. Those yep. guys. All the, our overlords. Our modern-day robber barons, our modern-day Rockefellers and Carnegies. Where are our trust busters? Hmm? That's what we need. Those trust busters no longer exist. Yeah, they're testifying against Congress. I tried to watch. I literally got through seven minutes of it. And I tuned in right when Jim Jordan started talking. And his question assumed that RPGI, the CEO of Google, was, is Google going to help Joe Biden get elected? And Sooner Pichai just tries to like, which he was doing the entire session and every tech CEO was trying to do the entire session was like not answer a binary question or a question. And so, well, I got to like draw it back and explain to you how this shit works, but they're not really explaining shit. And yes or no, yes or no. And then he, he finally kind of relents that we don't really do anything bipartisan. And then Jim Jordan brings up some random email that some marketing exec sent 10 years ago about Latinos donating to Hillary Clinton. And then he's like, see, you see, you fucking land. Like, I'm just like, oh, like I can't. And watching Sundar Pichai just like squirm to me. And I was like, Doug, you are a billionaire. If I was a billionaire, 
I would be lighting these motherfuckers on fire. Like I wouldn't, who's going to do anything to you? Like, so what you, you get fired, you're still a billionaire. Like I, that's the part that I couldn't understand. Like Congress that's isn't because, asking questions. That's because you're not a billionaire, bro. You don't understand the things that they understand about being a billionaire, which is you don't want to stop being a billionaire. So you need to keep these Congress hoes in check. And, uh, or you make some like, no, I, I, it honestly feels like to me that all these dudes made a deal like with the Illuminati to get a fucking, to get on top. And that's what they're worried about losing. Like it feels like they're worried about losing something other than their job. No, they're just, a, they just don't like being in the public spotlight. They're fucking nerds, man. Sundar and Zuckerberg and uh, Tim and maybe not Bezos. But they're all just fucking dweebs. And yeah, like, but Zuckerberg's a nerd. But even he, like he's like, yeah, fuck you. Yeah, but he's a heartless. He's a fucking computer, that guy. But that's the thing. It's like the 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 thing with all of them is that they like they've because they're like socially liberal or at least seen that way. They're like pro. Uh, gay rights and pro civil rights, equal rights for everybody. Uh, we don't see that they're actually pure evil monopolists, or just like John D. Rockefeller, they just wear like gap sweaters, and so no one thinks they're evil tycoons. But really, like they've done, the four of them have done more to destroy people's lives and displace people than like anyone in history almost. That isn't hasn't been a. a, a murderous villain you know like zuckerberg's just like yeah people commit suicide while they uh look at content on our website and market as bad i mean i don't see what i don't see how that's my problem you know bezos bezos someone left one of his trucks in the middle of fucking bqe he's like quit you know it's, he's like no we're not gonna shut our warehouses down because people have covid like let them work like that's that's the guy that that's who you're up against there's these are people who just don't want to be grilled publicly because their whole life they've just been bullied and they're still, still not an answer to bullies like Congressman Jim Jordan. And also on the flip side of it, they're yelling at a, they're trying to tell a bunch of old people who can barely use iPhones uh, how their tech monopolies aren't really monopolies. Just let us keep doing what we're doing. We're swear we're good people. They're all full of shit as we use Zoom and uh, 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 Gmail to communicate. But. Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, my whole shit is that I agree with you. It's just that if I was a congressperson that doesn't know how to use an iPhone, I still know what the fuck Andrew Carnegie did and what John D. Rockefeller did. And I also just, like, mentally understand that if I'm a phone manufacturer, I need to get plastic, I need to get metal, and all of those markets are regulated and I have to go and swim in those oceans and try to build a phone product. And then there's all this other extra shit. Like with tech and software, it's the same thing. If I have a social media app, how are you getting to news? How are you getting into marketing? Like you're getting into all of these tangential markets that aren't regulated. And that's why you're a fucking monopoly. I want some congressman to say that shit. Like ask them that question. Don't ask them if they're like surveilling people and helping Joe Biden or Trump get elected. Like, I don't give a shit because they're evil. Yeah. But those, those guys don't ever know to ask those questions because they don't understand the inputs that go into all this stuff. That's why. That's all it is. So, like, I remember when I was at, where was I? I remember, uh, I forget where, but Chris was talking about when Zuckerberg first went on trial, like a few years ago, two years ago or something. Yeah. And Chris was just like, you know what, watching that, Trials like it's like watching someone at trial who has zero stakes. Nothing happens to him, no matter what happens in that conversation. His life yeah. changes not at all. He's just sitting. They're all just going through the motions, you know. And plus, this whole shit was all digital, so it's like they could just read. Look, my lawyers could be right here if I'm Sundar Pichai, and you don't know that they're there. I mean, you know that they're there, but you don't know that they're there, and they're just passing me notes that I just got to read from. It's a fucking sham. It, it's just to pretend like they're doing something. Uh, but please follow us on YouTube and Instagram. <laughs> <laughs>
Uh, don't forget, our guest today on the show is co-creator, executive producer, head writer, showrunner, head guy in charge at The Patriot Act uh, with Hassan Minaj, my good friend, Mr. Prashant. Ven Katara Manajam. Check it out. Gucci, Gucci Turban. Turban. Patriot Act itself. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm stealing the company's Zoom account. Nice. Why? I don't know. I never changed the name. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> this is awesome. You met Asif before, right? I don't think we've met before. I don't think we have. No, we've never met. Nice to meet you, man. Hey, nice to meet you too, man. Asif? Yeah, Asif. Cool. A cool. uh, Hindu, a Muslim, and an atheist walk into a Zoom meeting. Let's see how this ends. Wait, there was someone else on the call. Oh, uh, that was our boy, uh, our Billy producer boy. Oh, gotcha. Cool. Um, but Wait, yeah. who's the atheist? Me? Rashad. Oh, I did not. I didn't. I, didn't, I, didn't, I don't come into these obviously doing any research. <laughs> I don't know, Asif, you know Prashant. Prashant is a co-creator and executive producer, head writer, um, head Prashant in charge at the Patriot Act, uh, Hustle Show. And then he was on, what, Bill Nye? The Bill Nye Saves the World? Yeah. You were on that? I was on it, like I had a couple segments, but I was a writer. Uh-huh. When did you start comedy and then when did you you, I know in like our own conversations, you said you stopped doing stand-up for a minute, or you were doing it. That's how you started. What's the yeah. what's the trajectory? Yeah, I uh, I mean, yeah. So I st I started doing stand-up when I think two thousand five. Actually, it's actually a bizarre story because oh I was, five. Yeah, man. I started when I was like in high school. So wait, how old are you? Thirty-three. Yeah. So you grad your damn. You started. With your senior year in high school? Yeah. So because Shit. so when I was in, in high school, like I always knew that I wanted to do something like in the arts, like something like theater performance, something was always How? like I don't How? know. Did you do that oh. shit in, did you sing in like ICC, like those, the Indian Cultural Club programs? Did you? Well, oh, okay. So you want to know like the sort of like origin story. I yeah. Mean, whatever you want to say, it's just crazy you knew in high school you wanted to do something in the arts well i should most credit goes to my older sister mm -hmm. so it's just the two of us she's five years older mm -hmm. and when we were growing up she was like she had a really tough time outside of just being the you know first kid born you know to my parents she's born in 82 i'm 87 uh -huh. and so just being the first female is already hard but the second thing was that she's really like artsy like she just is a very like she played like electric guitar growing up she was really into like nirvana and grunge and pearl jam and van halen and led zeppelin and like all these things where it's just like it's almost like she had like like a like a old white fish guy who was like her mentor but never did like it's like somehow she downloaded the tastes of like a white dude in his it that was raised in the 70s. Do you know what I mean? What's her name? Preeti. Preeti. Yeah. She's 38. She's 38. That's so, she, that's so funny because I'm, you know, uh, my friend Shanali also. Yeah, yeah, I know Shanali. Uh, my friend Shanali is from Tennessee. She's a little older, uh, but she has the same taste in music. As my Played sister. Play the electric guitar, sister, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. And she, like, so when I would come home from school, like, so we were a far enough age gap where we were never in the same grade, like, school. Like, uh -huh. when I was in elementary school, like, we were too young. And then middle school, like, she was gone by the time I got there. Same with high school and college. Right. But when I was in, like, sixth grade and she was, like, in high school, like, we were just, like, roommates. And sometimes I would just she would just like be jamming out at home and she was pretty good at the electric guitar. You know, she really like was into music and like art and all this really interesting stuff. That's like, she never had someone that showed her that other than like her friend group. She was always like really like into that stuff. And then the coolest thing, this is like, this is why, I mean, there's actually a direct line from like her influence to like what I do now on the show when I was 13 and she was 13 or 14 and she was 17 or 18, 
my dad with like the business he was doing at the time, we had to go to a trade show in Las Vegas. So 13, I'm like, it's 2000, 2001, somewhere around that. And uh, we're, we're at the MGM Grand, we're staying at the MGM Grand. And my parents wanted to go gamble, but nice. we couldn't go do anything. Yeah. And then my sister sees this, like we've been seeing like all these types of shows and like magicians and dancers and Vegas shows, right? Like random Vegas acts for like families and kids. Uh -huh. And then my sister is like, we walk past this poster of this guy and he's just in all black. And my sister's like, hey, can me and Prashant go to this, this show? And my mom didn't know what it was. And my dad was just like, it was, it was a comedian. Mm -hmm. And my, my, my dad was just like, oh, like he was always cool with that stuff. He was always really into like Letterman and John, like the, the Daily Show. Like he always had that stuff on in the background, really into like comedy and late night. Uh -huh. And uh, he buys us tickets and we're like, and you know, there's like a minimum and all this stuff. But like, you know, if you're, I don't even know how I got in to be honest, but didn't drink. You were old and, looking 13 year old. Yeah, I don't know. I guess the <laughs> scum stash I had at the time was just like, you're either into kids or you are a kid. And I don't know what it is. <laughs> Turns out the comic that she was like, oh, you have to go see this guy. It was George Carlin. Oh, shit. So we go, I don't even know what's going on. I don't know what the show is. Like we go in, we get seated and I'm like the youngest person there. And I, I'm young enough but also old enough that I'm like I would enjoy the show but I didn't I was like oh we're gonna see some sort of like weird Vegas Broadway show with like dancers and stuff and I didn't that's quite a perfect know what way to describe on. perfect way to describe Carlin in 2000 <laughs> Vegas Broadway show yeah I don't know his what sets was, were like that though. yeah his sets had like these crazy cutouts yeah. of the, the city and he was all black that like yeah. it was a theater performance but, but I didn't know what was going on so like the opener comes out and he starts talking to the crowd and you know it's just like it was a I remember him being a big dude and he had the mic and he was doing crowd work and getting the crowd warmed up and I didn't know the show had started like I I thought that like <laughs> something went wrong and they sent this guy out to just like talk to the crowd because something had gone wrong backstage or something mm -hmm. like that. And then he like finishes his set and then like Carlin comes out and it's like the place goes crazy. You know what I mean? It's like George Carlin in 2000. And he's like in still in his prime. Like you remember the older specials like 2000, he passed away in 08. Like that one he put out like in 06 or 07, he's like, he just looks old. Like you're mm -hmm. like, oh, he looks really old. But like in 2000, he still had some, he, he just had some pep in his step, you know? Yeah, yeah. He was still very like gravelly voice. His voice was like asphalt and he was just bitching. You know what I mean? George Bush hadn't destroyed him yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he starts telling, dude, he opens, okay. He opens with this joke about how it's really sad when young women die because there's all this good pussy that goes to waste. <laughs> like, Hilarious. it's intense, right? It's intense yeah. joke. And he talks about how it's like, it's too bad there's no business where you can like harvest the pussies and sell them to like old guys and they just look for good pussy like you would papaya. And he Jesus. like picks it up and he starts- Christ, George, oh. <laughs> Dude, it's intense. Like he opens with this like, in crazy vulgar joke and like the place is going apeshit like this is 2000 you know like there's no like pc anything there's no like twitter there's no like people are howling i'm cracking up right. and the set is just like crazy political crazy vulgar crazy whatever and it, i remember the show ended it was it was spectacular he did like an hour and 10 and like it was incredible he did the 10 commandments routine he did all these like really like legacy bits uh -huh. And the show gets over and I, it hadn't even dawned on me that I saw like seminal work from like one of the greatest comedians to ever walk the earth. You know what I mean? Like right. you, your, your Mount Rushmore is, you know, there's maybe 10 guys that can be on it between like Chappelle, Bruce, Carlin, Pryor, you know what I mean? Rock, like uh, these guys, like these juggernauts of comedy, you know? Mm -hmm. And I get done and I tell my sister, I was like, what was that? And she was just like, he's a comedian. And I was just like, but he's been in like movies here and there. And like, you know, I knew about like Shining Time Station and all that stuff. And I was like, that's what he does. 
And I remember asking her, she was like, yeah, he just, he just talks, like he just does comedy. And I was just like, that's, it, it just tore a hole in the space-time continuum for me. And like, after that, I was just like, that's awesome. Like something, I just, I knew, I always knew the concept of day jobs. I knew the concept of people like working nine to five. And I knew that there was a whole strata of jobs that were just like beyond that realm. And when I knew that that, like, he just, he spent his life just in the world of ideas. I was like, I just want to do that. Mm-hmm. And then right after that, 14, 15, because I'm in Chicago, improv was the thing. Like, I, you'd heard stories of all these people getting plucked out from SNL, right? Out of Chicago. Second City was here. It was like, oh, if you're in Chicago and you want to do comedy, you do improv. And so I started looking into, like, teen programs for improv, to be like, oh, I wanna, like maybe I could go take classes Second City, like 14, 15, 16. And then, you know, all standups are kind of egomaniacs in that like, you don't wanna play nice with others. You're like, I think the thing I think is the funny, like, I just wanna do what I think is funny. I don't wanna like do heralds and play yes and with these motherfuckers. Like I, mm. you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And so 15, 16, 17, I started dabbling in standup and my first shows, I couldn't even go to open mics. I would do shows in living rooms for like my high school friends. Like I would do like five minute sets and then like, it was like weird. Like there were points where like my friends would invite other friends over and then we'd form this group where a bunch of my friends would try out stand up or we could put on these like variety shows in my friend's basement. And like 60, 70. Ciphers. <laughs> yeah, it was like, it was like 60, 70. I'm not kidding. Like 50, 60, 70 kids would be packed in this basement and we'd rig up this little spotlight and a little mic situation and we would put on shows like once every month that's incredible it was wild and then after that like everybody got real and they were like all right i gotta go to college and do real shit (laughs) and i was the one fucking idiot that just continued was just like no no no, i want to keep doing this (laughs) yeah and then through college (laughs) yeah (laughs) and then through college i was still doing stand-up and i there were parts of me that wanted to drop out but i just finished the degree that i could get I knew I could finish in four years. Then I started doing open mics. And, and then by the time I hit 22, I was just like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this for real, which means like, I'm gonna get good in Chicago. I'm gonna do sets. I got on like the college circuit pretty young, like around 23, 24. And I did that from like 23 to like 26, 27. Like I was like doing a lot of colleges and, and I was doing a lot of local clubs, but mainly my road work was like in colleges. And then when I could, I would do sets at clubs that I could get in, you know what I mean? Like here and there. Um, but mainly like Zany's was like a home club, the improv in Schomburg, and then um, the, the, this place called the Comedy Bar downtown. So I was just doing the rotation of like the main clubs. And then I would go up in like Milwaukee, Indiana, Iowa, Michigan, Wisconsin. Like as a, when you come up in the Midwest, you basically get to like, the only way to get stage time is by doing like the circuit road. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and then yeah man so then like my thinking was like i knew like so that the age above me was like tj miller kumail those guys so like right when i got to chicago those guys were going to la right and they'd gone to new york and so there were like all these spots open like it's almost like there was like a class that left and then a class that migrated into it so i came up with like lisa traeger Megan Gailey, CJ, uh-huh. Drew Michael. Drew Michael and I started comedy together in That's Champaign, so Illinois. Um, uh, who else am I thinking of? Like Kenny DeForest, Clark Jones. Will Niles. Will Niles, like all those guys. They, so like, they all, like, we're all cool. Like, we're all, like, I, I, I don't kick it with them as much as I'd love to, but they're all really funny. Those, that was like my class, like right, right, Joe right. Gallen, Danny Callis. I don't know if you know those guys from Chicago, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. but that was basically like my class. And then they continued to stand up and then I was still doing stand up. but then basically like right around 24, 25, 26, I was like, I moved to LA and I was basically at this juncture where I was like, you know, I don't know, this sounds humble braggy but like people were like your jokes are not good on the road because they you're they require too much thinking they were like you're trying to like build this argument and you can see it in some of the clips i still have up there was like you're trying to like my manager kept that time kept being like just start submitting packets because i really think that like the way you think like you should start putting together writing samples so i started 
doing just tons and tons of submission packets, started running out of money, got a day job. And just basically at that point, I was just like, okay, if I'm going to be able to have the career I want, I basically was at a juncture where I was like, I can keep grinding it out at stand up, or I can try, or I really wanted to work in TV. And so I basically pivoted and I was just like, okay, I'll get back to stand up at some point, but I'm just going to go hard on like scripts, screenplays, writing packets and submissions. And right. like that's, and right when I moved to, so I met Hassan in 2009, we did college together. He was mm-hmm. like a couple years older than me. Then when I moved to LA in 2011, he actually hit me up when I got to town and he was just like, do you want to start writing together? Like, do you want to like start? Cause I feel like we get along pretty well. Like he was basically like, do you want to be writing partners kind of thing? Right. And he was smart enough to have the vision of just like all of the things that have popped for me or the things that I've worked best on are things that I've worked with other people on. Like he, he was good about always trying to be like, I want to build a team of people that I can, we can keep working together. Mm-hmm. And like our, our partnership just kind of always, even when we had nothing going for us, stuff was always like happening. So like we wrote a screenplay together and it got optioned. And we would write pilots and it would get us meetings. But like all the stuff we did like individually was always like kind of meh, you know? And then when he got Daily Show, he moved to New York and then I was still submitting and then I got in with Netflix. And then it was like the perfect storm where his special got put on Netflix. I was at Netflix. And then when we came up with like the show idea, we had worked on speeches together. We were doing correspondence dinner. Like we were getting some big, big opportunities. And then it it just made sense to be at Netflix for Patriot Act because we had relationships there, but mm. separately. And I had also sold another show to Netflix called The Fix with Jimmy Carr. So like yeah, I had had like, a, I remember yeah. that when you, I was at SNL, you came and you, you had just, yeah. Trayvon, it was you, Trayvon Nelson. Yeah. Uh, so me, yeah. So he, Tray, like at that time, like that show Basically, I didn't have enough credits. And so I, we had my manager and I, we had to partner with another team. Asif Ali was also part of that, uh, another production company. And then, you know, basically, like, they were the ones that helped usher it. But it was kind of interesting. It was really cool to, I was, I got super lucky in that, like, Netflix was buying a lot of talk at the time. And I got to see how differently shows can be packaged and sold. Mm-hmm. And I got to see how two different routes and what those results yield. Like, there's just no show that's ever sold and packaged in one way. Like it's all so winding. It takes different. a lot of creative people behind the scenes to make something yeah. hit, like thread the needle of what someone's looking for. Yeah. It's like this confluence of like, what's the idea? What are people buying? Whose schedule is available and who can actually execute it? Like who can produce it? And all of those things need to be all, they need to like all hit at the exact same moment and then a show gets created. But without that, it's, it's really hard. And then the other, this is the other thing, man, like my biggest thing, like going through the process twice now and like even seeing like Bill Nye, like that show, like I was just a writer, but seeing it start, you know, go and then end. Like one of the things that I just get so nervous at, but people still do it is like, they get so excited about the deadline article or the Hollywood reporter article where they uh, go, I sold a show or I'm on a show or this thing is happening and I can finally share it. You know what I mean? Like that uh, happens a lot. And I get so anxious when I see that happening because I'm like, the deadline article means nothing. Right, right. Like you have to make it, you have to make the show and it has to be, there's so many steps though. You have to launch the show. You have to make sure it finds an audience. You have to, make it sustainably it has to like retain its core audience you know what i mean like for a show to actually be successful it takes so much work like the deadline article is like just the beginning so there's always a part of me i don't know maybe i need to be better about this but like it's very dangerous because like deadline articles come and go but like the real important stuff is like sticking with that shit you know what i mean i don't know i mean have you enjoyed any of your success (laughs) (laughs) jesus christ i think you know me well enough to know that the answer is a resounding (laughs) the walls could crumble at any time deadline means nothing i mean yeah you're doing well man so yeah i don't know if that i mean you're basically like what's the origin story but that's basically been like my trajectory over the last like 15 years which is so crazy to say out loud that's nuts yeah i mean i i didn't start comedy until 
11 years ago. Yeah. I met Hassan. Only 11? That's still a long time. I know. I mean, but it feels like when you say 15, I'm like, I don't know what the fuck's going to happen in the next four years. Yeah. You know I mean, 15 years ago, I was a freshman at, in school. Yeah. And I was, right? Yeah. I was a, I was a sophomore, but 15 years yep. ago, yeah. But like, uh, uh, I saw Chappelle for the first time ever, you know, like, to think that I, I was never like, oh, I'm going to do comedy. I didn't think about doing comedy until four years after that. Yeah. And even that was like, maybe. You're, I was actually just talking to Huston about you weirdly just the other day uh -oh. about how like you are such a, everything about your demeanor and your aspect, you're so much more of like a purebred standup than me or him in my opinion. Like there's, there's a couple things about, comedy like there's it, there's this is the way i think about it this is my framework for like there's stand-up tv i should say stand-up specials tv and film and the thing like being a great stand-up to me is like being a great like sushi chef like it's very popular but the skill sets to make like great world-renowned sushi like there's four or five key skills you need to know same with stand-up like you need to have a, a good personality. Like you need to have a voice. Like you're, you physically, your voice needs to sound interesting. Like my voice is like high and tenory. Like it's like, if you think about great stand-ups, there's like I, a gravel. I would listen to a lecture if you were to give it. <laughs> that's not stand-up, that's the problem. I'm yeah. giving you a PowerPoint right now. That's why I'm engaging. But you've got that. Like you've got a good voice for stand-up. You've got this laid back demeanor for it. And you've got like a personality that lends itself to stand-up. Like you can maximize all four of those things. Like you think about like Pryor and Carlin and Chappelle and all these people like they all have very distinct. I'm literally talking about the timbre of your yeah, voice. Yeah, yeah. Like, what do you sound like? They all have very distinctive styles. There's like a storytelling that can, that can, that comes through. Like, I just, I just started. Sorry to cut you off. No, no, go for it. it. I, I was just, like, I'm working on this cartoon with a friend of mine, uh, and we're voicing most of everything. Yeah. And uh, I was watching old interviews of. Uh, like voiceover actors and I happened upon the uh, Chappelle inside the actor's studio. Yeah. And I had no idea that he went to acting school. Yeah. But he's a yeah. trained actor. And then you yeah. realize when you listen to the way he talks and the way he delivers stuff. And I only bring that up because it's tied to the voicing stuff is like all of it requires a certain technique that you don't realize he's implementing and that skills I'm trying to just add to the, the repertoire now to the sushi chef repertoire. Just like yeah. Being able to sing song in my voice is so, I, n I never knew it as a thing to do. There's, exactly. And here's the other thing that like when Chappelle's firing on all cylinders and I think when great comics are, you know, there's the debate about like, there's, because of the explosion of content, there's, there's like a spectrum of specials now, right? Mm -hmm. You've got like, you know, the Ryan Hamilton's, Hannibal Burris. Sam Morrill type special, Mark Normans. These are just like great singular joke delivery guys. Like they're not trying to tell like a long arc of a story over 50 minutes. They're like bouncing from anecdote to anecdote. They'll sprinkle in one-liners, punchlines, transitions, longer stories, one minute bits, three minutes. Killer minute jokes, yeah. Yeah, killer jokes. They have a very great, it's a great meal. It's like a great tapas meal. Like They'll hit you with a transition joke that people don't pick up on. Then they'll do a three-minute story about dating or their roommates, and then they'll go, then they'll talk about themselves. They, they, there's a flow to it. But Chappelle and these com like comics like Chappelle actually have, they'll do that, but their their set will be broken out into longer chunks. So if you notice, like sometimes younger comics, if you look at Bill Burr, this is a perfect case study. So Bill Burr, when you look at his old albums, he's got 25 tracks that are all a minute apiece. When you look at comics that are coming into their own, their albums start to go from 25 tracks that are all one minute to eight tracks that are seven minutes. You'll start to see, they'll start to think of their act in these chunks, these stories, these arcs, as opposed to just like singular bits that are just transitioning. You know what I mean? On my next album, I have one track. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you'll see that. Like my point with Chappelle was like, 
he has a he doesn't go on the full one man show of like Colin Quinn or like even what Hustin's doing or big or bigly, but there are big storytelling aspects to his specials. Mm-hmm. There are long threads. He'll pay off stuff that he did in minute one and minute forty seven. He'll keep hitting callbacks. He'll keep he'll set these things up and he'll let them play out, you know? Um, he's a great storyteller, but he doesn't come off sort of like a one man show ever. No. He comes off like a comedian. You know what I mean? He's a wizard with it. Yeah. He's he he, he hides it very well, but he yeah. knows he know he has a very large dynamic range of performance. Uh, I was watching I rewatched uh Chris's Bigger and Blacker and I was like I now I remember why it remains the best special to me. It's like mm. it's got all the the connections he's got callbacks in it he throws yeah. it, it, it like he ties like minute one to like minute 15 you're just like what the fuck and i remember thinking when i first saw bigger and blacker i was like how the fuck did we go from white kids shooting up the school to to a blowjob at the end and <laughs> like you don't even remember i don't like it's so well connected that you don't even realize he's jumping from one thing to the next. Like he goes yeah. from he goes from white kids shooting the school to Clinton to the parents to how he was raised to uh, being married. I was just like, how the fuck does he do all this? And then you watch again. Oh yeah, this is dude. This that's, is also, a, that's also that's also masterwork. Like, bigger and blacker is full calorie Chris Rock voices but but even think of his voice yeah yeah like that's what i'm saying even with his with him think of his voice during those specials like he turns it up there's chris rock yeah and then there's i'm chris you know what i mean it's like he knows it and i think like you've you've got that like you've got the ability to be full calorie namesh with your voice and with your demeanor whereas like sometimes what i feel like there's a there's a there's a good stand-up special in me uh-huh. But for me, what mine's going to be is like more, not to say I'm at this caliber, but if I do something in the future, it'll be more Carlin-esque where it'll be like arguments and bits. It's not mm-hmm. going to be like, sometimes I don't know if people are going to be like, yeah, I just want to kick it with Prashant for like, <laughs> whereas like with you, intense. it's kind of like, yeah, exactly. Whereas like with you, it's like, yeah, I'll get high and watch the mesh special. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I just want to kick it with this. What stuff. high, what high praise. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so you're working on one? No, I just, there's, there's parts of my story and parts of stuff that I think about that I'm like, oh, that would be really good for something I want. I've always thought this, and I don't know if it's true, but I've always been like, older age will sit well on me because of just things I think about. I sometimes think, you know this, like I get so in my head, it sounds like I've got the worries of like a 55 year old man. Yeah. Resting up. You know what I mean? I think like I'll be more comfortable older uh-huh. than I am like. Why? Younger. Cause you think your thoughts now are too old? I think that they don't match, uh, you know, like what? I'm a dark person. Like I think about real fucked up shit, you know? And you know what, you know what I thought that was real fucked up yes, two nights ago? Hmm. Do you think? What if you found out Hitler meditated? That was a thought that I had. Like, like this. You know, it's funny. It would make complete sense. Of course, he meditated. (laughs) Yeah, he meditated. He did Tai Chi. You gotta focus when you're when you're mission driven to be an asshole on that level. Yeah, of course he did. I mean, the problem. (laughs) I mean, there were people that would kill to be as productive as Hitler. that's the problem you know what i mean like he was too effective like when you're that evil and that effective you can get a lot of shit done how was he staying calm is the question i don't think he was dude have you heard that like all the nazis were basically doing like crazy amounts of like heroin like a type of heroin and oh yeah yeah i never heard that yeah yeah they were like crazy hopped up on like meth and all this there's weird opiates that makes sense yeah so was Hitler. I mean, Hitler had like a daily dose of like opiates and shit like that. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah, I guess you are dark. If you're fucking reading about what the Nazis were doing. To- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Looking for productivity techniques. If the Nazis could stay calm during their fucking war crimes, I shouldn't be this stressed about war. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, I think that would make for a great special. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, why don't, like when Austin goes on the road, why don't you just open? I may. It's more of like, it depends on like what the, he's, he's offered. It's just a matter of like, what do I have to say? What, because what, I, everything. What yeah. do I want to talk about? That's my mo that's the most important have, thing. You have nothing to lose when you go up. No, it's not about it's not about nothing to lose. And I, I it's kinda of like a bike. Like I would need like I mean there was dude, there was a period of like seven or eight years where I don't think I went longer than a week without doing a set. I was like really like I did stand up really hard for a really long time. So if I went back to stage and I had like my ten minutes, I would be able to it would be like a bike, but now I'm at the stage where I realize and this is like what I think is key for like any artist, whether you're a musician or a comic or a filmmaker, it's like, what do you, what do you want to say? It's like, you can, there's so many talented singers, dude. Like there's so many people that can sing like Taylor Swift, like Beyonce. There's people that can hit those notes, but they're not songwriters. You know, they don't know how to like, they can do covers, they can do that kind of stuff, but are you, do you have something to say? Like that's, that's what separates them from being able to like do that kind of shit. What are you thinking about now? Hmm. Like what you say, you, you're having dark thoughts. We're there's all sometimes like, all the where same I think, age, you know? There's sometimes where I think that uh, the message that I want to tell the world is not something that the world really wants to hear. Like the things that I believe are things that people don't, it's not like palatable for a mainstream audience. What, what mainstream audience do we have? No, no, no. Meaning like if I, if I were to try to do a special or if I were to whatever, like I just think some of the things I believe are just things that people fundamentally, like left and right, like people just don't want to swallow it. They're just like, yeah, but there's well, no like such eugenics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so I just can't you, imagine like everything. I've got so two words know? for you, race and IQ. <laughs> <laughs> people aren't ready for this. <laughs> what did Carlin say when you were 13 that caused you like you could mainstream audiences don't exist anymore that's true that's true you could yeah. find a fucking all you need is 300 prashants in every city yeah that you want to do comedy in, and you're good it's not like you're doing it for the money yeah yeah until you are but you know What's getting yeah, you from the stage? Like, Sorry, go ahead, Asif. I mean, I don't know you, and we just met, but I feel like you just got to let it fly, man, because <laughs> what's the worst thing? Like, the worst thing that could happen to any of us and all of us as human beings is death, and it seems like people don't give a shit about that. So why not just get on stage and just let it rock, you know? <laughs> no, no, no. It's not, it's not coming from a place of – I'm not saying this to be whatever. It's not coming from a place of fear. It's coming from a place of, like, I am, I've always been a guy that's like, I want to craft the hour or the 45 minutes. I've never been like, oh, I want to, I want to get 10 minutes. I've always wanted to be like, oh, I want there to be like a larger punchline built into the whole thing. And I want the stories to all play off of one another. And I want there to be like a theme and some ideas. It's more of like, if I do it, I would need to clear a lot of runway in my life to go, okay, I'm going to put aside like any TV projects or writing projects or stuff me and Hassan may be working on and just go like, okay, I'm going to take the next two years and just go, okay, I'm going back in. I'm going back into the trenches and I'm going to try and like just start getting up and getting back into it. And I'd have to figure out like, what do I think is worth saying from me? You know what I mean? Because there's so much stand-up out there. There's so much content. And I'm just thinking about like, what's what would be important that I'd, I feel is like worthy of spending those two years on, on putting I mean, together like an hour. You're being too precious with whatever you think is so dope in that brain of yours that you can't start putting it out. In, like, you can't work on it 10 minutes at a time. You yeah. I mean? It's like, yeah. what? Maybe. Look, man, you're a very accomplished and successful guy, but you're not going to fucking shit out two hours. You're not going to shit out an hour or two years without, like, getting on stage for, like, five minutes at a time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That for yeah, I mean, sure, for sure. I think there's also a bit of like, um, you know, like everybody, like at this point in our thirties, like everybody kind of yo-yos. Like there's like, 
with health. Like there's points where you'll be like, oh, I'm, I'm getting down to trouble. I haven't been worked out. And then you'll go hard and you'll get back into it. And I think that like when you go hard and you get back into like working out and stuff, it's similar to stand up where it's just like, okay, I'm going to, I have to make the conscious choice to just do that. Do you know what I mean? Because uh-huh. it's, you can't get good at stand up if you're not doing it seven times a week. You know what I mean? Right. You Sometimes. gotta be, yeah, it's got, it's gotta be a discipline to be like, cause if you do five minutes here, five minutes, you do one workout a month. You're, that's just pointless. It's, you're never going to get back on. If COVID hadn't happened and you guys were on break right now, you, would, you wouldn't do... I mean, I know from when I was at SNL and from like people who are still there, like whenever they're not working, they're on stage. Yeah. Like, would you be doing that? I would be thinking about it for sure. Yeah. I'm just trying to get a confirmed date out of you as to when you go back... Dude, who so gives I a shit? I'm not so, Eddie Murphy. So I can, so I can be there and boo. <laughs> I'll just turn everyone left and right. What the fuck is this guy talking about? <laughs> I didn't know this was a fucking brown TED talk. You know? But do it. Yeah. I'm going to be there. I'm going to, we're going to, the last time I, one of the last times I saw Prashant was uh was when uh i had to do a gig at the CEO, oh that was a wild night ceo of a e-cigarette company oh is that what it Jewel? was yeah no i don't even know if you could say it that wasn't, it wasn't jewel it was something else but it was like the ceo his loft um and they had in tribeca and it was on like the seventh floor uh elevator straight up and we get it's a dinner party and I forget for Sean that we had like met up for drinks or some shit and then I was like yeah we got dinner and then you were like do you want to just roll to this thing and I was just like hell yeah (laughs) let's go to the show and we go I love there's nothing I love more than like strange stand-up experiences oh it was wild bro it was a wild time (laughs) because we went in and immediately like we were told not to go left out of the elevator we had to go right take our shoes off yeah and and then go like into this back room, bedroom. Oh, you're missing a key part of this detail. Uh-huh. We go up in the elevator and, uh, you know, it's like a private residence. And uh, the woman who is coordinating the whole thing saw me, I get out of the elevator and she's like, oh, you can't have a guest, Nimesh. And then Nimesh oh, is yeah. like, oh, no, 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 it's fine. Don't worry about it. And she's like, no, 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 this is like a private place. You can't have it. And then I was like, dude, it's fine. I'll just meet up with you afterwards. I don't want to like ruffle feathers. And Nimesh <laughs> just like is like, I'm not performing if he can't come up. <laughs> just like he just, he, he's, he's willing to die on this moment <laughs> for whatever that. reason, which is exactly who you are. And I appreciated it. But he literally was just like, I'm not doing it then. Bye. And she's like, uh, fine. Nimesh, like whether he's got a full, a full house or he's got nothing, Nimesh is like all in. Like, there's still, he's never oh, yeah. not, he's always just going all in on everything. Why not, man? What? Look, Prashant, I'll be honest. If it was like $5,000 that they were paying me and they're like, no guess, I'm like, I'll see you later, bro. <laughs> 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 but it was like, it was like, it was like 125 bucks. Yeah. Um, which is still what? a lot, which is 125 bucks, which was still a lot of money <laughs> for like 10 minutes. Uh, yeah. down the street from the cellar but it was the principal at that point i was like what do you mean it's just it's someone's living room it's not a fucking security guard at the fucking there's no diplomats here so we go in take our shoes off and put on booties i think yeah it was like the whole staff there's a whole cooking staff like 20 people making all kinds of gourmet shit go up and uh some rich ass lady peddling some kind of silver soap. Remember that? That's what she was. That was like her. Goop? No, it was not it was, the CEO's wife was like selling like this fancy soap. That's why it was a dinner party for her and like a launch of her fucking nonsense. And she was so. If I could tell, she wanted to be condescending and rude, but her all her friends were there, and then. uh got off stage told them i was like fuck you uh like because she insulted me i was like i don't 
I don't need your money. You're not paying me on like a thousand dollars to be here. Uh, left and Prashant, and I, I just remember thinking that was a wild ass stand up night that I will never forget because you could, because I had so many insults pop up in my brain after. Dude, you know, you like were, you were openly antagonizing the crowd. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's that's also true. <laughs> Did they pay you? Yes, yes. Did they feed you? No. Okay. Uh, I, I was openly antagonistic, <laughs> but only because it felt it felt like one of those places where they that was the Illuminati. That's that's the that's the right wing constituency constituency of New York. Yeah. Can I can I also tell you I had a moment while I was there. I don't know if we talked about this where I was just like, oh, this is why capitalism will eat us all. Uh, I I had such okay. So I was sitting there and I remember just looking around like super wealthy white people. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, living like this. If you rented this place, it would have. This is easily like a seven or eight million dollar property. Like the rent on it alone would have been like fifteen to twenty five thousand dollars a month minimum. Oh yeah, yeah, it was. Nice, and man. it was nice. And there was a whole staff. They like a walled off staff. I mean, like there was a staff of like fifteen people all there to serve maybe like twenty five or thirty people. <laughs> yeah. There was like one staff member. Like the ratio was like one to two. <laughs> yeah, it was you know? nuts, dude. And I remember just being like, wow this is what rich people do. Like they bring their restaurant to their house. They'll just pay like thousands of dollars. Like that dinner party easily costed like $20,000 to pay all the staff, to pay for all the food, the drinks, all that stuff. And I remember talking to one of the servers, this girl, she's probably like mid twenties, late twenties, one of the servers there. And I remember just trying to like commiserate with her because I was off in the back while the mesh was performing because I was trying to like stay out of sight. And I remember telling her, I was like, isn't this fucking weird? I was like, isn't this weird that we're just here and like you're just in this person's house and like you're serving them and like my friends performing for them. And there's this whole economy built around like us showing up and just serving these rich ass people. You know what I mean? Uh And we're guilty of it. Like Uber Eats, all this stuff. We're like, we're the poor man's version of that, but like they can afford to bring a restaurant, a full fledged restaurant. And she, I remember the server probably making like 17 bucks an hour right uh-huh. 17 20 bucks an hour something like that and she was just like wait what's wrong with that and i was just like everything is wrong with that i was like what do you not and she was just <laughs> like well if you can afford it like there's no problem with it like they can afford it and we can do this for them and i was just like we are lost because the problem is is people like her have bought into the fact that this is normal and this is like, okay, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? For like the average person, she's, cause I bet in her head, she's like, I want to be that lady. I want to be that lady that makes like a mill a year. And if I make enough money, I'll hire the version of me to come serve me. And I'm like, this is, yeah, the system, the problem is, is not that rich people buy into the system. It's that poor people buy into it. Hmm. Now we, we've, now we're talking about something for Sean. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, Nelly, Nelly, all right, Asif, awesome. you want to go? <laughs> Let's talk capitalism. But, I mean, there's, I, I could see her point, though. I see her point, too, but there's no part of her that's like, yeah, I'm going to take the money, but it is, like, fucked up. Like, this is just the way, like, life in New York is. You know what I mean? Like, you can... I, I always yeah. hesitate to put myself in any one of those conversations was like, I don't know what this person who is super rich or on the uh, serving side is thinking when it comes to like how much they need, whatever it is they're doing. So like this lady is like, she sees nothing wrong with it because like, she's putting food on her table too. No, it's true, literally. But I just mean like that there's like enough rich people in Manhattan that private catering services are a viable business. Yeah, you know what I mean? Well, we were like, on the elevator. There was a Russian lady that got, cause remember we went to like the 10th or 15th floor. Yeah. <laughs> we were like two yeah. Russian people got, I'm like, Oh my bad. This is Dude, that's, that's the one thing that still like blows my mind about New York. Like everywhere you go, like it's unfathomable 
how much money is in that city. Mm -hmm. Like it's unfathomable. New York is great. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's fun. like the story is interesting because when I went to Bangladesh in 03 and I don't really go that often or really ever want to because I don't have a lot of family back there, but I have like a distant uncle that ran a, runs like a garments factory that, you know, hires kids who are making $20 a month to sew dresses for Zara, essentially mm -hmm. in H&M. Um, I know you guys did a great piece on that. So yeah, yeah. to you for that, but oh, thanks, I, I have a distant, so I have a distant uncle who ran that factory and I went there specifically to do some humanitarian work to really kind of understand like the village that my parents and my grandparents came from. I wanted to affect some change on some like privileged Westerner thing. Mm -hmm. And I remember touring the factory and seeing the horror of it, you know, and back then it was much worse than it is now, even though it's still not great, but, you know, seeing kids with their hands dyed, stained of whatever dye station they were working at permanently being stained. And I remember going to my uncle's office after he toured and he was like really proud that I'd seen his enterprise. And I was like, dude, what the fuck is this? Like, how could you like smile? Like I'm horrified by this. And he, casually looked at me and said like if i didn't have this factory here all those kids would be dead yeah 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 no i i, I there the, this is the this is the tricky thing about like do you know the text there's this concept in economics of just like the textile um the boon of textiles so like every two decades or so the textile center point of the world shifts to the next developing economy right like it's like Bangladesh, like before it was like in China, like their middle class, it's like every, it's always like the, the, the emergent developing country. And it just, the ball keeps shifting to when that country achieves a certain level of wealth and there aren't people that are willing to do those kinds of jobs, then they'll find another country that's too poor, you know, that's on its way up. Right. And it is like that weird, that weird liberal guilt you bring to it. Cause you're like, yeah, it is true. Like, like, Foxconn plants are super shitty for iPhones, but there's a huge swath of Chinese middle-class people that are out of like being like poor farmers that can like make money, send it back to their families. And like, we apply this sort of weird Western guilt to it when in reality, like they may be choosing to do that, you know, for the betterment of their family and they have a path forward. So it's a hard thing to reconcile. Yeah, I just like, I remember him having a BMW, which was a big deal in Bangladesh. <laughs> and the funny thing was the air pollution is so bad that the German air filters couldn't, you couldn't actually drive the car. So he would have a, <laughs> he had a fleet of BMWs in his estate that he couldn't move. He couldn't touch. And he would just have his staff go and just turn on the car every three months. And I was like, dude, how about have one, you have one of those and you can like feed these kids or like just hire 18 year olds and not, 13 year olds or something like that. And he still didn't, it didn't compute. But then I remember like, maybe if you hired 18 year olds, you'd make less shitty Zara dresses. that don't like, I tried to appeal to him on like the capitalist mindset. And it's just nothing like, like it just made me feel doomed about the entire situation. And like, I understand that like the buck's going to get passed to wherever because prices get driven down and there's this like high minded economic discussion that I'm not deaf. I'm definitely not, uh, you know, not the right person to have that, those conversations. But I wonder about, like, specifically, like, what values that, because this is my dad's, like, uh, like cousin, distant cousin. And I wonder about what values that he had. My dad, he shared whatever. I mean, they grew up in the same kind of environment and, like, how that plays out over here. Like, are we just, like, doomed to be, like, ranked capitalists? Like, that's the part I can't reconcile, like, how like for our parents and my parents, like, yeah, you care about Bangladesh, you care about the people there, but do you really? Yeah, I don't know. It's tough because like, yeah, these are all places where it's like, you have people like a lot of people in our family who um, in our types of families, like they're trying to get theirs too. You know what I mean? They're trying to like make money and like, fundamentally capitalism is not about getting everybody to reach the ceiling. It's about raising the floor 
like minimally, you know, it's, yeah. Yeah, that's like the trick of capitalism is that everyone is that the losers have been convinced that they can still be winners. Yeah, yes. You know what I mean? That's yeah. Like, that's the, that's the uh, server being like, what do you mean? What's wrong with that? But it's yeah. like, that's also, that's, that's a, a, like diminishing what she's saying. And because she, she's also, that server is also right about what's wrong with that. It's because she's putting food on her table, but you have to like destroy the entire foundation of the economy to make it such that we could all be on a level playing field and then rise together kind of thing. Yeah. So the short answer is we're fucked. Uh, capitalism is going to eat us all. Um, yeah, do stand up on that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying. I, I've been saying on stage a few times I've been up, but socialism is awesome. You know, the fucking minimum unemployment that everyone's getting. Like, this should be, like, imagine you could just get your rent and your healthcare paid every month. What would you yeah. really, what would you really, like, you, then you could be free to do whatever the fuck you wanted. It's bad for comedy because then be more comics. Yeah, but it'd be good because there'd be a lot more shitty comics and then the good ones would be even, uh, uh, would rise even faster, I would hope. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how socialism bit. How is your, is your socialism bit going over well with these crowds? I've done it once, twice. You know, it, it has been hard to like try. Just I need to be on stage to do like I need to think on stage a lot, uh, and the being on stage will force me to write a lot more. Um, and because it, it's all very iterative, like a, a billion times, I'll just find something on stage that I didn't realize I was thinking. Not even necessarily like a joke, but just like a thought. Yeah. And I'll be like, oh shit, okay, oh, I gotta make sure that I explore that thought later. You know, like I, I, I said the other day, like defunding the cops, uh, the joke I was getting to would, a show called Defunded Cops would be hilarious. And it's just like a dude riding up on the city bike and shit. But the thought of, uh, money being reallocated i didn't even add it to 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 like neighborhoods as opposed to police departments and like invest in a community like that wasn't a thought i had until i got on stage and just thought about it out loud um anyway what was i saying socialism yeah socialism hasn't been i've only i need to i need to iterate it like a billion times <laughs> and on that note tip your weight staff yeah right what do you, what else you got going on today? Uh, nothing, dude. I've just been, you know, we've been on breaks. So I've just been, you know, thinking about, I've just been catching up on stuff. Like I've been watching shows and just, you know, thinking about like, yeah, I've just been catching up on a lot of stuff. It's you watched really Norseman? Awesome. No. Oh, it's so funny. It's on Netflix. What? Norseman? Norseman, yeah. It's about, it's like a, it's like a comedy that. about Vikings. It's so funny. It's like, I it's, watched, uh, it, I watched Indian matchmaking, which is wild. What a wild show. Was it good? So the guy in the first episode is the guy whose fake ID I used in college. Get it. I swear <laughs> to God. I swear, <laughs> to God. I swear <laughs> on my mother. Which guy? That's crazy. I, which I, guy? I, I, I don't know. Vinay. <laughs> really? <laughs> wow. Remember when we bro. were at we were at on Bleecker Street and no. you and I were on Bleecker Street. <laughs> uh -huh. We tried to get into this bar. I used that ID and they look at me and go, You're not five ten and they fucking took the ID, they took Vinay's ID. Vaguely. I went, distinctly I, went, remember that. He went to dub? He went to No, dub? he was like friends he was like friend of a friend of my he was like my roommate's older sister's friend. Uh -huh. And she got the ID for him, and then uh -huh. he got another better ID that looked like him. And uh -huh. they thought that I looked enough like Vinay, so I was I was Vinay for uh, four years in Washington D.C. That fucking a horse tooth herb. <laughs> 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 fucking that guy's a herb, bro. I've never met him, but I've I've been him. I've He's to a him. herb. 
Uh, oh, that show is wild, Prashant. I can't ruin it for you. You should watch at least a few episodes because you can see the game being played so clearly about like how Netflix is trying to penetrate into the Indian market. So they've got like the, the they've got people in Mumbai who are being match made and they've got people in the States being match yeah. made. They got a lady who's based in Mumbai, in Mumbai. So she's got like classist and casteist and racist tendencies, but then just it's like she, she goes to a pundit and all this kind of, it's wild, bro. It's wild, but it, it, it has achieved uh, what it set out to do, which is get every Indian person in the world talking about this goofy ass yeah. show. There was a joke we were going to put on the show, but we didn't, it, we wanted to do it, but we 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 almost had like too many kind of Netflix jokes uh-huh. in this one episode. But I, there was a joke that I wanted to do about how like every Netflix show is now like the title of the show is their demo that they're trying to hit. Like it's Hilarious. just so transparent. So like. There's just going to be shows that come out that's like gay Puerto Ricans, 18 to 25. <laughs> yeah, they're just giving up. Yeah, like they have a show called Tall Girl. Tall Girl? Yeah, or a movie. I think it's called Tall Girl. Uh-huh. But yeah, they're just becoming so transparent with their sort of market <laughs> aspirations. Tall Girl? Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh. Good for and them. Then, yeah. <laughs> And a tall girl I know watched that movie. <laughs> I've got to see this. It's clearly about me. The Norseman is not intended, if that's the case, Norseman is not intended for us. But it is fucking so funny. It's about, it's about Vikings in the mm-hmm. 700s. And it's like inter-Viking uh, village uh, politics and like fighting and stuff. But the core That's of it really are, are these the core of it are these like weird love stories and and they make so many rape jokes. <laughs> <laughs> really? But they're like they're like perfectly done. They're not like insensitive. It's just like you, yeah, I mean you go to a village, you have to rape. <laughs> it's just so fun. Just watch it. I I can tell that face of yours. You're like, there's no way these are like taste no. I'm just curious to know if they actually pull it off or it's just like Fantastic. Namesh being insane. No, no, no. <laughs> no. These are great rape jokes. They are <laughs> great, they are. great jokes. <laughs> that's, that's the takeaway from this podcast. Nimesh Patel loves rape jokes. I mean, you're well done. they're well done jokes. It's fucking so just watch the pilot. You'd like oh, I will. I gotta go see this. I gotta see the rest of this. Uh, that's what I've been watching. Cool, man. Yeah, man. I mean, I don't wanna keep you too long. We we can talk for like 3,000 hours. Uh, yeah. Awesome. Um, you got to bounce, right? Yeah, I gotta, I've got a few. Uh, okay. I haven't been pinged yet by my uh, overload. Dude, this is great, though. It's cool to just kick it and chat. Yeah, man. Thanks for coming on. Yeah. Um, whenever you want. Whenever you start promoting your uh, capitalism is going to kill us all uh, stand-up special. That's right. <laughs> From your, through right now. from your from your uh, glossy C-suite at Netflix's offices. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh man! All right, I'll talk to you guys. Peace, man. Take care. Thank you guys so much for watching. I've been Nimesh Patel with Asif Mansoor. This is Gucci Turban. Uh, shout out to the Patriot Act uh, and Prashant uh, for joining us today. All right, thank you guys.